Uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and your brothers and sisters at Chehalem Valley Presbyterian. It is a great privilege to be uh, given this opportunity to preach and to speak to you. I know that our uh, congregations are increasingly getting closer as we minister together in the great town of Newburgh. And I know that I am getting to a place where I must be somewhat accepted uh, by Matt, where, you know, there's no need for a sort of an introduction. You know, Tim's like, look, just get up there after I'm done playing. Like, you know, you, when you don't have to knock on the door, you know, you just walk into your friend's house. That's when you begin to realize that that there is an ease of relationship and friendship. And it is a great blessing uh, to be here this morning and to share with you a little bit from James. Again, Matt, I love him. So I give him a passage in Ephesians about preaching about the love of God and unity we have out of Ephesians 2. And he gives me faith without works is dead. Don't know that that was terribly fair. But let's put that passage in front of us again. And then after I finish reading, that actually would be a great illustration for a couple of points in the sermon. So if we go back to that overhead, that'd be great. But let's put the word in front of us again. James chapter 2, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Hear now God's word. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be, uh, do you want to be shown, you senseless person, the faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scriptures were fulfilled that says Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called to the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for this time of worship, a time where you have brought us again into the very throne room of grace. And we ask now that as we spend time looking into your word, that we might be reminded of the greatness of our God, his love and care and good plans for us to love one another as we have been loved by you. 
And I pray this morning, Lord, that anything that is said by me that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I don't know, uh, I see some young parents here this morning. When we, my children were growing up, I have one, uh, I have four children. Uh, all but one of them have left the house. Uh, they're out and about all over the country. Uh, but one of the books we loved to read when our children were growing up is Amelia Bedelia. Have any of you read that? Yeah, there we go. You got to love Amelia Bedelia. And she is sort of a wooden structural literalist, right? I mean, she hears a word and she tries to do exactly what she thinks that word means. And of course, great hilarity ensues. And so you have uh, the uh, person she works for say, go dress the chicken. Now, that means something when you're feeding people and you're putting dressing and sort of getting it ready to uh, serve. But Amelia Bedelia puts clothes on the chicken and brings it out because dress the chicken means put dressing. Uh, or uh, there's another scene in the book where she's, to- she's told to draw the drapes, which I think means pull the drapes back or pull them closed. I, I'm, I'm dyslexic. But the reality is that she goes in there, she sits down and she literally draws the drapes. And then the lady comes in and she's got a picture of the drapes that she drew. There is a way in which when we read a passage like this, we've got to understand that James is using words that he is trying to either redefine or use differently. And if we take some of these words and we read Paul or we read Jesus, we may not necessarily understand exactly what James is all about. And so we need to read James as James intends to be read and also hear James in the way that he is trying to redefine words that some of his original hearers would have listened to every day, but perhaps had a one notion of what that word meant. And James is saying, no, 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 you've missed the true definition. This is how Jesus changes this definition and makes it rich and beautiful and gracious again. And so part of what we're going to do this morning is look at some words that we all perhaps have certain expectations and definitions of what they mean. And that may make this passage in James far more difficult than it really needs to be. And some of us hopefully will be uh, encouraged and affirmed as we move forward in our lives what God is doing in and through our faith and what that faith does in our daily and moment by moment lives. Now, you already know that James has already redefined a word in chapter one that gets thrown around quite a bit. The word religion, as I'm fond of telling my congregation, uh, religion is a bad word in the Bible. Because religion, most of the times that that word is translated, whether it's a Hebrew word or a Greek word, into English, it's in the negative, right? That is to say false religion, idolatry. Religion in Scripture usually is a bad thing. And what James does is say, you want to use the word religion? Fine. I'll tell you what the religion looks like when it comes in line with who God is and the character of his people. False religion, true religion. Or what we like to say at CVP is the gospel tells us how God got to us. Religion tells you how you got to God or how you try and get to God. Now, that's a fundamental difference, especially when you're talking about two paths, because when you're at the beginning of that division, 
it looks like they're probably going to go about the same direction, maybe just around the hill differently. The problem is you go down the wrong one, you end up a very far distance from your original destination. And religion, if we don't understand what James is trying to get at, in the difference between true religion, the religion that is really the gospel, and worldly religion, where we all try and figure out how we can make God happy. Now, it depends which God you choose. But what we know is that the reality of the gospel is that it didn't matter how hard we worked. We could never bridge the gulf between humanity and our brokenness and sin and the pure, beautiful love of God. And so God had to come across and get to us. Now James knows that. And he knows the power of the gospel. He grew up around his big brother, right? We know G James is described as the brother of Jesus. He knows firsthand about the different faith and therefore what the difference in works really means. Because whatever James is talking about here, what we know he's not talking about is religion. Not in a worldly sense. He is not talking about this is how you get God to like you. This is how if you try really hard, Jesus will give you what you want. This is not if you try really hard, maybe with a couple of extra prayers and some good luck, when you get to judgment day, he'll let you in. This is not religion. James believes, just as Paul teaches, that it is only through the work of Christ that any of us are saved, that any of us have peace with God, that any of us have standing. It's a gift. We could never earn it. James is not suggesting that we can earn our path to heaven. He is going to talk to us this morning about how we understand the gift we've been given in Christ and how actually subtly we can sometimes confess Jesus, but still be on a religious track in that worldly sense of how do I get to God? How do I get God to like me? How do I get God to give me what I want? So religion has been redefined by James in chapter 1, verse 27. The true religion, or what we would call the gospel, is how God gets to us, and it has the activity of going to the other. This morning, I want us to work a little bit on the word faith, works, and then finally justified. So first, faith. James is redefining this commonly used word, or at least defining it in line with the truth of the gospel. It is a regularly used word in our culture, right? We would say faith, faith that... Uh, some point, the winter will end and we will see the sun again. We got to see the sun a little bit yesterday, which was a pleasant surprise. Right? We have faith in the rhythms of life, but that isn't what James is talking about. James is talking about, initially, a faith that is reduced to certain doctrines or intellectual agreements philosophical ideas in the head. Religious identities. And 
to some degree with his Jewish brothers and sisters, racial identity. For a first century Jew, their belief in certain truths, I am a monotheist. All the Romans and the Greeks, they believe in 50 gods. Each town has their own god. No, no, no. I am a true believer because I am a monotheist. I believe there's only one God. What James is saying is that in a buck fifty will get you a cup of coffee if it doesn't have a practical implication. Just knowing that there's only one God is not the faith that transforms. It's not the faith that Jesus expresses. It is a true fact. But what he is saying, even demons know true facts. They may try and deny them. They may try and hide them from us. They may pervert them. But they know true facts. Knowing true facts is not faith. Knowing true facts is just the beginning. The question is, what do those true facts do for you? How do they transform who and what you are? We just sang this morning about the beauty of the Trinity. It is a core doctrine, core truth of Protestant faith. It is a true description of God who is both one and three at the same time, which I cannot explain. And anybody who thinks they can, you should have deep questions about. It's just a truth. It doesn't fit in my brain. God is infinite. I'm finite. It ain't going to fit. But the reality, the beauty of it is that it helps me understand who God is and how he ministers to me. And there is richness and truth in it. But guess what? Abraham and Rahab did not know the doctrine of the Trinity. Knowing that doesn't save me. I may be responsible for it. Of course, Rahab didn't have to deal with Trinitarian philosophy and theology and the difference between Arianism and Athanasius and all this fun church history, which I'm Presbyterian. I have to show if I got a degree. No. <laughs> and it's fun church history if you want to learn it, how God protected and helped these great truths that we see in Scripture come forward. But the reality is that if you have put your faith in being Trinitarian and that's the reason you know you're better than somebody who's not Trinitarian, there's no life and health in that. See, the temptation to believe that our doctrine, there are some differences between our two churches. That's not what's going to save us. It is not doctrine that saves. James is saying that your faith cannot be in the fact that you know some different facts or hold on to some facts that your Greek friends don't hold on to. That is not going to save you. As rich and as beautiful and as important as it is to know truth. God help us if it's what we do to look down on others. The truth should make us servants of others. That's what he's getting at. Faith in the truth of God should allow us to actually be more generous, more gracious, more forgiving, less excited about being right. And more confident that right has come and indwelled us. That the truth of Christ by the Spirit lives in us. Faith. He is being brutal about how we can use faith. I like to believe God is X. Or I'm smarter than you because I believe this confession or that confession. Or this theologian or that theologian. That line of reasoning. That belief, how do I know? Well, I know at least I don't go to the Presbyterian church because they, they baptize babies. They got all kinds of crazy things going on, but at least I don't. 
Or maybe the Presbyterians might think that we're going to heaven because we baptize babies. And all of a sudden, is it those truths? Is that what we're going to say when we meet our maker? Well, at least I didn't. Or I was smarter. No, of course not. We all know that in our core. And yet the world around us would say, get your identity by being right. Get your identity by what church you go to. Get your identity by what culture you come from. And Paul is saying your faith in anything but Christ in the end is going to lead you astray. Now, how do we know if we have faith in Christ? How do we begin to wrestle through that? Well, we begin to see whether or not the truth of Christ is transforming us. See, Moses, sorry, not Moses, Abraham, Abraham had a tendency to sacrifice others for his own good. Now, we don't like to play this part of it out very much, but if you remember, Abraham had a couple of situations where he was in harm's way. He had fled to cities. He was under another king's power, and his wife was so gorgeous that he was afraid that if the king knew that it was his wife, they might kill Abraham so they could get his wife. So twice... Abraham lies to protect himself and puts his wife to some degree at risk. It's kind of unsettling. Here is a man who, even as he was working through the process of having faith in God, and he had already made monumental steps, and he had left Ur, and he was moving in the right direction. Faith was growing within him. God was interacting with him. He put his faith in God, but the implications he was growing in. So that when we get to the point where the one thing that he'd wanted his whole life, which was a son, someone to pass on his lineage, the promise of God that you will be a blessing to the nations and I will make your children as numerous as the stars. And God says, your son is what I require of you. Now here's a man who is willing to throw his wife into somebody else's bed. Now he's faced with his entire future and identity. What will faith do? And Abraham, contrary to everything we've seen so far in Scripture, is willing to trust the life of his son to his God and not to his own wisdom and protection. Faith has worked in Abraham in order that, so that he begins to show in his very works the faith. Rahab doesn't know anything except the fact that somebody, this massive group of people, got delivered out of Egypt about 40 years ago before she was born. They've been running amok in the desert for 40 years. She's heard about the destruction of all of the cities that have stood in front of them. But she also hears that they have a different faith. And as she interacts with the spies, She confesses that faith. Now, is it in the same way that you and I would confess or pray a sinner's prayer? No, we have a lot more knowledge. But Rahab confesses that the God of the Israelites is greater than the God of Jericho and that she believes in that God and not the God of her family. And she puts her family and her life in the hands of that God rather than the God of her own household. Does she know a lot of theology? Could she have passed any sort of exam. No, but she knew that there was a God in Israel who had liberated and freed her people. 
And she wanted to believe in that God. And so she risks everything she has in order that she might know and live with the God that is real. See, it becomes an outworking. The works that James is talking about, when he refers back to Abraham and to Rahab, are works that come from a transformation of the heart, increasingly understanding that the faith is about the faith in a true and living God who loves his people and has come near, who gave his own son that we might have life. How can I not come into contact and begin to believe true things about that God and not begin to act like him? To be generous, gracious, forgiving, no longer looking at whether or not you're as right as I am. Whether or not you come from the right background, socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, nationally. We need to be careful then that as we move from faith into works, that we be really clear about our starting point. Right? The starting point is, in the gospel, religion, true religion is how God gets to us. So assuming that God has gotten to us, that is to say that he's shown his love and we've confessed our need, that we could never be good enough, that in the midst of that, as he begins to transform us, that our works will resemble who and what he is. And so when we talk about caring for the poor, when we talk about not honoring the rich and making sure they sit up front like uh, the earlier part of that chapter in James, but that you treat everyone equally with respect and gentleness and kindness, that that is an outworking of how God treated you. He may have told you that if you keep doing this particular sin, you'll ruin your life. He may have told you something hard at some point. It's not that God doesn't tell us hard things, difficult things to hear as he corrects us and loves us, but it's in that context of love. I love you. Let me tell you how you can be free. Right? That's the gospel. And then once you and I have been set free, how can we not extend freedom to others? God doesn't like me because I was rich. God doesn't like me because I was poor. God loves me because he loves me. We are all equal in the eyes of God. How do we treat each other in that equality? So when we care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate, that's not because I'm better and I get to go help that person. But because we are all in the same boat, how can we not serve one another? That will protect us from works. If I think being nice to people and doing good works for others is a way in which God likes me better and shows that I'm better than somebody else, that is what James is working against. That is dead works. That's what Paul's preaching against. That's dead works. But if we come into contact with a living God who makes us alive, who shows us generosity and care, how can we not show generosity and care to one another? James is not telling us, this is how you get God to like you. Work five times at Fish Food Bank. Volunteer with Love, Inc. Whatever it is. No. But as you come into contact with God, can you not be gentle to the person next to you? Whoever that person is, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
Again, there is nothing more powerful than that great uh, parable of Jesus's where he talks about the man who was beaten on the road to Jericho. And the power of that parable is that the people who had their theology right walked by him. The people who knew God had religious reasons why they couldn't help the poor guy on the side of the road who was beaten and bloody. And the person who came from a race of people despised by the Jews, a Samaritan, doesn't have all of his theology get together. But he knows what it is to extend love and care. And so he does. And Jesus says that's the outworking of the gospel. That's what true faith is. It's embodying the one we have faith in. We don't need to worry about whether or not our works will turn into self-righteousness if we continue to keep our faith about the one who saved us. And realizing that all we're doing is extending God's grace to others. It's been extended to us. I won't tell a joke about a pastor looking at a clock. So we have faith. We need faith. It needs to be faith in God, but it is faith that transforms. We know we have true faith as our hearts begin to break and become more and more like Christ. The logical outworking, James says, is that we do things that Jesus would do. The works that James describes are what we see Jesus doing throughout the Gospels. It's a logical outworking. Not a way to earn credit, but a way to extend the credit already given to us. In Christ. So what does James mean then when he says... In this very difficult verse, if you've read a lot of Paul, it seems like James and Paul are in a fight about how one is justified. Justified is a word with a large range of meaning. For Paul, most of the time it's what's called forensic justification. Now forensic, interestingly enough, is just a word that means in front of the court. So you've got Forensic, uh, you know, we all is CSI and all this forensic medical. It's so that they can give evidence before the court. Right. So forensic is anything that sort of collects information to present before a legal body. And so for us as Christians, when we talk about forensic justification, what we mean is that there is a judgment against us because of sin. And God was right and just in judging us as rebels. But Christ gives us his own righteousness, not because of anything what we've done, but because of his gift. And before the law court of all eternity says, these are my children, they are right with me, because I am right with you, Father. Forensic justification. There's nothing you can do. You are justified before God because of what God did for you. That's not what James is talking about. James would agree with Paul. What James is talking about is the more common use of the word justification, which is seen throughout the Old Testament, translated into the Greek. Try not to get too deep into that. But the bottom line is this. If somebody comes to me and says, you shouldn't have helped Frank. Why? Well, because Frank is this, this and this. And I go, well, you know what? I understand that. But I did help Frank and I feel justified before God in my actions. I think I was in the right. 
I'm not claiming that I'm eternally justified because I helped Frank. I'm saying that I believe in this instance that my actions were right. That I could stand before God and go, I may, but I believe I was right. That's most of the way we read the word justification in the Old Testament. Justified in some of our actions, not on the big law court, not about eternity, not about salvation. And so what Paul is saying is that your daily actions, your statement of your faith will be justified by your daily actions. It'll be shown to be right. And one cannot argue that I believe the right thing when our actions don't justify it, don't prove it to be so. Again, never doubt your salvation based on whether or not on a daily basis you think you did a little better or worse. That is not James's point. What James is saying is that as you grow, you will see victory over sin. You will become less and less a victim of yourself as Christ grows in you. As you begin to understand what it means to be loved by an eternal God who loved you since the foundation of the world, who knit you together in your mother's womb. When that love drills deeper and deeper into your heart, it will change the way you see others. And to the degree that I have difficulty loving other people, what I do then is look back at my heart and go, in what way, Lord, do I doubt your love for me? Because I know the only capacity to love someone else is really dependent upon how much I understand how I'm really and truly loved I am by you. And that God's love then pours out of me. And I know that not only am I justified in an eternal way, but the daily, my faith is borne out in my actions as I love others. That's what James is after. Not a religious experience that drives you to work harder to get God to like you but an enjoining of your faith that a God who loved you unconditionally desires that you might be able to love yourself and others as you are loved by him. That's true religion. That's the gospel. And that's what we have to extend to one another and to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful. We ask that you would, again, bless your people with a sure knowledge that their faith built on the rock of who you are will transform their lives, transform the world around us as your spirit leads and moves. May we move out in confidence. May we trust you. In Christ's name, amen.